Coca-Cola Zero Sugar. Best Coca-Cola ever. Try it now and decide. I need to try it first. Pod's own country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and this fortnight I'm joined by Sir Vince Cable, former leader of the Liberal Democrats between 2017 and 2019, uh, an MP for Twickenham from 97 to 2015, and again from 2017 to 2019, but also a part of the coalition government. And he's going to talk to us today about coronavirus and the economic recovery and whether austerity plays a part in that and we're really pleased to have him um bear with us for the first couple of minutes of this episode the sound was a bit scratchy and it's one of the dangers of us all working from home at the moment i'm sure we're all experiencing different things but it soon gets better keep with us Cable, thank you so much for joining us on Pod's Own Country. It's really, really good to have you here. How are how are things in your part of the world? How are you coping with the coronavirus crisis? Well, thank you. I I, I know it's a slightly um, dangerous place, but I'm having what you might call a good lockdown. I'm with my wife and her on her farm in the middle of the New Forest, which is absolutely idyllic. So, social distancing and uh, social isolation means lots of country walks and cycle rides. Um, which you know is the kind of thing you would pay for to have a nice holiday but uh, anyway I, I realize for a lot of other people it's much more miserable than being stuck in a high-rise flat with young children is purgatory by comparison so I'm being very lucky. No, absolutely absolutely I mean I'm really keen to talk about well lots of things with you today really and it's really good to have you on I mean I guess to begin with you obviously got plenty of experience kind of in government and uh, kind of leading leading the Lib Dems as well. From your perspective, how has the government handled this crisis so far? Well, it, it, I think it's on two levels. I mean, in terms of the, the health impacts, it's handled it very badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, crucially, it's lost trust. Uh, I think a mixture of confused messaging, being late on, onto the case, the, the Cummings affair was very damaging. So they've lost trust, and as a result, they're not taking the public with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the economic policies uh, have been, in my view, perfectly right so far. Uh, but the, the the crucial issue is where we go next. I mean, the, the government has correctly taken the view that in an emergency of this kind, you need a massive, uh, massive help to prevent the economy going from recession to depression. You need a stimulus to get it going again, and they've been doing that. Um, the, the question is going to arise about what happens in the autumn when the furlough system ends, how much support the government will continue to give to the economy, uh, and whether we will deal with the big accumulation of debt over a sensible period, which is probably sort of 20 years, or whether the government will try to deal with it over two or three years and crashes back into very severe uh, cuts in spending, austerity. Uh, and so on. That, that's the choice that's looming up in the autumn. And that's one of the reasons really that I wanted to get you on today because I really want to speak to you about the topic of austerity and really the risk of returning to it because like you say there we're looking at these longer term things now aren't we and seeing how we come out of this. I mean 
what is what is your view i suppose on if we should be avoiding austerity and how we can do it if we should be well i i don't quite know what the the phrase avoiding austerity means because obviously there has to be some discipline over public spending uh, the of government course. can't just uh, manufacture spending out of nothing um but uh, what we should be avoiding is a sharp cutback um, which drives us into deeper recession, creates a lot of misery uh, and uh, hardship on top of what already exists. So it's got to, there's got to be a long-term plan. I think probably the best way of, of answering your question is to compare and contrast our present experience with what's happened in the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. um, the financial crisis, I think, you know, Gordon Brown did the right thing. Um, there was a very big expansion uh, in the economy, pumping money in through the central bank and uh, tax cuts um, to you know, create a very big budget deficit. That was the right thing to do. Um, I then came in with the coalition, which had to stabilize things subsequently. Mm. And we had a plan which we inherited from Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling, which was to they wanted to deal with the accumulated deficit over uh, seven years and we tried to do it over five years it finished up over seven years mm -hmm. um, and, and that also was the right thing to do i think this time uh, we are going to have to take a much longer time horizon to get the budget back to normal partly because the crisis is much more serious the hit to the economy is going to be much bigger than it was 10 years ago partly because the whole world is in a slump. Previously, last time we had China and India and other countries pulling us out of recession. And also because last time uh, Britain uh, was particularly vulnerable because we were the, the you know, big banking economy. And there was a worry that if the government didn't act, uh, we would be dragged down a bit like Greece with, but in our case, with a devalued currency. Uh, and a crisis of confidence. So it's much less likely to happen now because all the Western economies are in very similar situations. So I think we should take a relaxed view about the very large deficit in the budget, uh, accept that uh, spending has got to continue, maybe continuing the furlough scheme in a, in a different way, together with tax cuts, things like uh, national insurance on employers have got to be cut to encourage employment to have some very ambitious uh, work creation schemes, you know, the model of the New Deal in America in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of very imaginative and expensive things are going to have to happen. But the government also needs a long-term plan, as I say, you know, it could be 20 years, uh, for getting the deficit and debt levels back to what would be regarded as sustainable, comfortable levels. Yeah, it's really interesting because like you say, it's a, I mean, the predictions, I'm sure they'll change by the, by the kind of month, but at the moment, I think the OBR are saying that the spending could be as much as 298 billion just for this financial year. Um, well, this, yes, this financial year is going to be a total disaster, uh, yeah. but not just in Britain, almost everywhere. Um, but the British economy will decline by over 10%. Bearing in mind in the financial crisis 10 years ago, it declined by just over 5%. So it's at least twice as bad. Yes. Uh, and the, the budget deficit, 
will be again at least as bad as it was 10 years ago and probably much worse. And so that's why we've got to take this, um, not panic over it and try to have a long-term plan for getting the public finances back to normal. Mm, and it's, it, you can see, I suppose, why people are, people are worried. You know, you said at the start of your answer there that you weren't sure what we kind of meant by returning to austerity. I think the fear for people is seeing returning to those kind of, you know, squeezing, seeing services maybe not being as, as well financed as they could be. And the Prime Minister has said that austerity won't be part of his approach. And you've spoken about a few bits there. I, I suppose we've got a whole range of options open to us, haven't we? But it's just which ones the government decide to take. Yes, we, we don't really know what's happening inside the government, but my, my understanding is that there is a battle going on between um, Number 10 Downing Street, uh, where the Prime Minister and his advisors want to keep the economy going flat out, public, a lot more public spending, particularly in the north of England, the mm -hmm. so-called red wall seats, where they feel they will suffer real political uh, damage if they don't deliver on their promises, and the Treasury, which is worried stiff about the budget and is already preparing uh, plans for a new round of cuts. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we've had trailed uh, some of the things which we know they're going to cut back on and I, I don't actually have enormous problems with this, but they're, they're going to take away uh, the full indexation of pensions. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm a pensioner and I've benefited like everybody else over a pension age from the fact that you know we haven't had to take a cut in real terms after inflation in our pensions. We've done pretty well. We sailed through the last decade very comfortably, but that can't continue. It's very expensive and the government is going to abandon that. But there will be a lot of other unpleasant things as well if the Treasury get their way. Mm, I was interested to see the uh, suggestions about VAT in the last few days because I thought things like an increase in VAT or income tax or national insurance were probably unlikely because like you say the government won't want to take that money out of the economy when it could be spent by consumers in the shops for example I mean in a, in a term of wanting to get people back out and spending. Yes it would be completely mad to increase value-added tax at the present time it may be in the very long term, uh, you know, when we're talking several years ahead, when we've got out of the worst of the crisis, that might be part of the, um, you know, mechanism. Um, particularly if Britain is going to have overall higher levels of spending, kind of Scandinavian type of spending. The Scandinavians have significantly higher level of value-added tax than we do, but that's a long-term problem, certainly in the short term. As I say, it would be economically, um, you know, suicidal to go in for high levels of value-added tax. We should, if anything, be thinking of cutting it, but certainly cutting things like employers' national insurance, which are a penalty on job creation. Mm -hmm. I see. I wanted to maybe mention as well, I don't know if it's something that you would still be pushing for the uh, the mansion tax which was originally put forward by you in 2009 wasn't it is this something we could see do you think making a return to try and help us out of this well it got a rather bad reputation with people who live in um what they think are mansions which are <laughs> on the doorstep consists of almost everybody uh, well it wasn't intended to be aimed at everybody it was just a proposal that we try to make the 
council tax system fairer. Mm. Uh, if you're at the middle or bottom end of the council tax system, you pay a much higher uh, percentage of your income in council tax than you do if you're in very valuable property, uh, because the, the thing is not kind of in any sense proportional. Uh, it's, it's a very unfair system. So I did suggest increasing the bands at the top end, which would have the effect of people living in real mansions and, you know, for a million, two million pounds, uh, paying somewhat more in council tax. And I think that is the kind of long term uh, tax change that we're going to have to introduce, partly to get more money for the government, but also to have a fairer system. I see. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes sense. It's, it's interesting to see that idea kind of come back round in a new kind of context, because it's, you know, it's obviously completely, although there are similarities, completely different time in what, 2009, when that was first spoken about. And I think Ed Miliband adopted it in 2015 as well, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not completely out of the water. Mm. It's, I think, I've got a stat here, which I think is interesting. YouGov has found that 58% of people do think the richest in Britain should be paying more tax. Um, and I suppose somewhat surprisingly, you might say, the um, support for that was highest amongst those over 50. So, I mean, do you think that there is appetite in the country at the moment for this rebalancing, maybe we'd call it? Um, I, I think there, there should be, and there may be, um, but I'm, I'm a bit burnt by experience. <laughs> one thing to have a general belief that we should all pay a bit more tax to have better services or to create a fairer society, but when the government actually comes up with something that hits your own pocket, uh, people tend to scream with protest. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, we should have a fairer system. Um, that means, first of all, cracking down on the abuses that take place. And there are a lot of people who do get away with dodging taxes. But the trouble is a lot of those people are ultra rich and they can flip from one country to another. So we can fulminate and say this is terrible, but you know, it's actually quite difficult in practice to force them to pay their taxes. They simply move somewhere else. Um, I think the things which um, we could do and should do is, I think particularly older people, my, my generation, we've done pretty well actually out of these hard times. Our pensions are protected, uh, our property values have been going up, so we're, we've got this paper wealth which, if we die, goes to the next generation. So I think uh, dealing with unproductive wealth wrapped up in property, whether it's through capital gains tax or inheritance tax or what you referred to as a mansion tax or some combination. I think that kind of thing is necessary and um, if, if it was presented in the right way, uh, would probably be acceptable to the public. Mm -hmm. And like you've been saying there, there's two parts of this, aren't there? There's the longer term maybe reforms that you're looking at and then there's the, I suppose, more short or medium term, the immediate things that we're going to have to do to get things back on track i mean what what are your what are your thoughts there what are your suggestions for that well the the, the key priority is to get the once we've seen the back of this pandemic or at least seen the worst of it uh, the economy needs to get back to full working which is mm -hmm. going to be extremely difficult because a lot of jobs will have gone 
and a lot of people are going to have to be helped through period of unemployment or helped through retraining, helped through adult education. That's going to cost a lot of money. And we're going to have to stimulate demand so that people continue to spend. Now, if the economy starts growing again, uh, then that creates more tax revenues for the government. So we mustn't cut that process off. We've got to get the economy moving again, growing, generating more tax revenue. Uh, and when that happens, we can also think of restructuring the tax system to make it fairer in the way that we've just been discussing. Sure. So it's it's a short term of let's get things moving safely. Let's open up and then readdress maybe some of the longer term issues that can maybe yeah. be fixed. Yes, I think there is. I think that's correct summary of what where we are. But there obviously is a difference of view, particularly in the conservative side and within the government, about the best way of stimulating the economy. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some, and I would share this view that we really need to think about things like big public works project to get people back into work and to stimulate the economy. But there are others, and um, you may have heard Sajid Javed, the former chancellor, proposing this the other day, who wants to try and stimulate the economy through tax cuts, um, which is, of course, a different way of doing things. Uh, mm -hmm. It's got different priorities. Um, and there's a certain amount of ideology involved in, in that. And do you get any kind of feel for what side might win out in those in those arguments or do you not want to kind of put opinion, place your bets on either side at the moment? Well it partly depends whether um, Boris Johnson's pledges to the people of the north of England win out over the more conservative instincts of the treasury and of uh, you know that large, the people like uh, Sunak, the the current chancellor, or Sajid Javed, who I think are conservative with a small C as well as a big C, mm -hmm. and are more interested in tax cuts than they are in public spending. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you're quite right when you speak about the North. There, I think it's really interesting for us to see that the way that these policies and this recovery might be received in those former red wall seats and not not only the former red wall seats i've you know plenty of seats that have uh, not been held by labor for a long time as well um how that the impact there is going to really shape how the government proceeds in this it's key isn't it how these seats are kind of perceived yes uh, and unfortunately um you know this this problem of declining areas or left behind areas with whatever we want to describe them I mean it isn't just a long-standing problem but it's currently getting worse through this pandemic because it's people in those areas who are most likely to suffer from the contraction in some of the traditional industries and service activities they're much less likely to benefit than people around London from the strength of the uh, IT sector and computing and the new startups so that there is a danger that the, the left behind areas get even more left behind uh, unless we're very careful to ensure that um, the local authorities in those areas are sufficiently well funded to keep their services going and that there are sufficient good uh, projects both public and private sector to get people back into work there is a real risk I think of the polarization of Britain becoming even worse. I um, read a 
interview that you did with Sky News earlier, actually, where you said that the massive cutback in public investment under the coalition potentially prolonged the decay of some of the UK's communities. I mean, is that a fear that you still have now? You know, do you fear the same mistakes maybe are being made? Yes, there is a risk of that. And I think it, it is, you know, I, I would defend many of the things that the coalition did and we had to be uh, austere in approach to public spending. But I think there was a mistake made in the cutbacks in public investments in the early stages of the coalition. I said so at the time. Um, I think it did quite a lot of damage. And this is, in a way, the big argument that is going to um, loom in the next few months. Uh, where, the, the, you know, the mayors of the big northern cities, I saw Dan Jarvis in Sheffield and um, similarly in Liverpool and Manchester, the, the kind of city mayors arguing for uh, lots of funding for, you know, big infrastructure projects. Uh, but the Treasury will be very, very reluctant to um, go along with that. And that's the big kind of policy argument that we're going to see. Absolutely. And as we speak, uh there's some data coming out that shows that uh, most of our councils in our area, at the very least, are looking at very, very difficult financial times. It's a black hole combined for Yorkshire of more than £360 million. So it's going to be difficult times. And I think the, the hands are going to be knocking on the Treasury's door more and more as we, as we emerge from this, really. No, you're right. That there is a serious problem with local authority funding. It was serious even before we got into this crisis, but it's made much worse by the fact that the local authorities are having to support the care home sector, uh, which is in desperate problems for reasons we know about. There, there are holes in their budget as a result of special needs in education, and those children with special needs are in an even worse position now, having missed a lot of school. So yeah, the councils are you know not in an enviable position at all, and this is um, not just a British problem. I, I was reading yesterday about the terrible position of American states, mm -hmm. uh, which are having to balance their budgets. I mean, they, it's, it's not just that they've got a hole in the budget, but they've got to balance them immediately, which means they're going to have to decimate their teaching and their policing and other services. We're not quite at that stage in the UK, but it's pretty bad. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before I let you go, Vince, I really must ask, and it's a non-coronavirus question, but how, what are your thinkings about the uh, Lib Dem leadership race? We've had nominations open this week. We've got Ed Davies put himself forward, as well as Leila Moran. Is there anyone you're backing? No, no I'm not. I mean, I take the view that as a recent ex-leader, it's not my job to uh, pick sides amongst my former colleagues. They're both, both those two are very good. They'd both be good leaders. And I'm actually quite optimistic about the future. Um, I, I take the view that the, um, the fact that the Labour Party is now coming to its senses under much better leadership is actually helpful for the Lib Dems as well, because I think what was happening in the last two elections uh, was that the electorate was so frightened of um, you know, Corbyn and the Labour Party coming back to power that they wouldn't vote for us either mm. in seat particularly in the south of England, uh, where we are the main challengers to the Tories. And if that fact is removed and people are much more relaxed about a Labour government coming back, I think actually the, the Lib Dems benefit from that. So the next leader, whoever it is, may have a rather easier job than I did. Lib Dem resurgence for 2024 then, hey? 
yes, I think there will be certainly a growth in the number of seats substantially. We could get back to the kind of level of 50 or so, which we had um, a decade ago. And if that's the case, the Lib Dems will be players um, and hopefully working in partnership with other parties to turn the country around. We've had uh, too long Tory government, in my view. And thank you so much for coming on Podzone Country. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Podzone Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and this episode was edited by Dave Clay. You can find us wherever you usually get your podcasts, whether that's iTunes, Google, or whether that's Spotify, we're on them all. Please do take some time to leave us a review, to subscribe and to tell your friends because it really helps us get more listeners and that's what we always want. See you soon. Making a difference in the world, living more sustainably and driving better business practices. It's the change we all want to see. Imagine combining that with a free, fully funded master's degree and a generous tax-free bursary. Board Bia Talent Academy is giving you an opportunity that could change the course of your career. In partnership with UCD Michael Smurfit Graduate Business School, we're now enrolling for two programs. The Origin Green Ambassador Program, focus on sustainability, and the Supply Chain and Procurement Program, focus on commercial food and drink buying. Applications close on May 14th. For more details, visit boardbia.ie slash talentacademy.